welcome back to the Stronger Medicine podcast. My name's Julian Donovan, and I'm an emergency medicine doctor working in the NHS in the UK. So it's been a minute since the last episode, but nonetheless, today I bring you a conversation that is slightly different from previous ones. I've been speaking to Dr. Dan Dworkis, who is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor based in Los Angeles. Dan completed his emergency medicine residency at Harvard Medical School and now runs the Emergency Mind project in addition to his own clinical work. He runs the Emergency Mind podcast and has written the Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And with titles of some of the chapters such as Train Your Tired Moves, Decide Not to Decide, How to Apply Graduated Pressure, and Commit to Never Waste Suffering, I certainly learned a lot about how to get better in the emergency department and even life in general after reading this book. And so today's conversation, I asked him a lot about some of these different areas. And you can expect to learn how to better approach emergencies and high pressure situations, not just in the emergency department, but in life in general, as well as how to deal with when they inevitably do occur, failures and setbacks that we can often run into in life. Now, just a quick note before we begin, I have to say that I didn't realize at the time that Dan was recording the audio through his AirPod Pros, rather than the big fat juicy microphone that he uses for his own podcast. So unfortunately, we don't have the studio level quality of sound that Dan normally provides on his own podcast. But nonetheless, I do believe that the content of the conversation more than makes up for that. And so without any further delay, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Dan Rorkis. Dr. Dan Dworkis, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to to discuss your book and everything that you've been doing with me. It would be it probably would be useful to just hear a, a bit of a snapshot as to kind of who you are, if that's okay, and and what you do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, first off, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm 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 psyched to talk about it and and uh, hide from the other side of the pond, as it were. Um, so I, uh, I am an emergency doctor here in the States in, uh, in Los Angeles, and I'm a professor of emergency medicine at USC, um, at, uh, LA County USC program, which is one of the busiest emergency departments on the West coast and, and really in the country. Uh, and separate from that, um, my main focus is on human performance under pressure. So I run the emergency mind project mm. and our goal is to figure out how individuals, teams, and systems can really excel during emergencies, both in and out of the emergency department. That's really been my, my passion and my focus for the last several years. Oh, very cool. That's very cool. Well, just to contextualize the conversation a bit, if you don't mind, um, I, just from my own perspective, I just wanted to mention that sort of for me, I feel like there's this sort of archetype for an acute physician, which has certain characteristics and traits and dispositions, characteristics that I look up to and I, I aspire to kind of strive towards. And the thing that really attracted me towards emergency medicine was the, the process that you sort of have to go through to become the type of person who can do that specialty really well. And it feels like you're sort of going through multiple AeroPress filters to get pushed through sieves to become this individual. And I found that the Emergency Mind project that you've developed makes explicit a lot of the things which 
I don't think are really out there to, as, as tools or as a framework to try and reach that area that is in the distance, this kind of archetype that I'm referring to. So that's, that's what really drew me towards it. You've made explicit a lot of the things that I've been trying to like kind of bumble through. And I know many of my colleagues will be thinking about as well. Um, so how, how did, it would be interesting just to know a bit about, because it's a big project that you're running there. How did it sort of, what was the genesis for that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're hitting on some like really, really important factors of, of what it takes to be able to, uh, respond to an emergency and to be an, an, um, you know, emergentologist. I don't know if that's a word, but, uh, to, to, to do emergency medicine, right? Um, and to really perform in, in those areas. And, and in a way, it's a, it's a structurally similar problem to what a lot of other groups uh, uh, face when they're thinking about participating in what's sometimes called like the extraordinary world, right? So it's a term that like Preston Klein, Dr. Preston Klein from the Mission Critical Team Institute uses a lot. Like the extraordinary world is the part of the universe that is just different from normal life, right? Whether you're a special forces operator or you're a wildland firefighter or you're a NASA astronaut or you're an ER doctor, right? You spend part of your time in this space that is so different than the way most of our lives work. And it, sort of by definition, um, you know, there's a period of your life where you're not capable of doing that, right? Nobody's born a NASA astronaut. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think anybody's born an astronaut. I can certainly say nobody's born an ER doctor or emergency doctor, right? You have to switch at some point in your life from not being that to being that. And so what is that threshold? What is that, what does that limit look like that you're crossing? So for me, I got really interested in this whole project because I had a couple of cases at the beginning of my training where I really did not perform the way I wanted to. You know, I, I was well-trained. I had a, a great fund of knowledge, right? I had all these facts floating around and I couldn't get them out of my mind into the patient. I couldn't bring them to the tip of the spear where they were most needed. And I, and I went home just agonizing about this. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying something that you felt also, right? Everybody goes through this at some point in their training. You see something, you're like, why couldn't I get my skills to this person? And I just kept thinking about it and, and kept thinking about the fact that like, it's almost an orthogonal, an orthogonal problem set, right? There's like the knowledge that you have to learn. And then there's the ability to apply that knowledge under pressure. And I was learning knowledge, but how could I learn that other piece? How could I start applying that knowledge under pressure? Which is essentially asking, how can I ready myself to step into this extraordinary world? Right? So I started digging and I started digging in other fields and I started asking uh, older, wiser, more gray haired emergency doctors of one form or another, how did you do this? What did it feel like for you at the beginning? And sitting there and doing that over and over again came to really you know, sort of get the sense that actually this is a real problem. Like we're not really sure how to do this in a lot of ways. And certain groups have solved pieces of it, but that really this idea of how do you train people to, to as you said, sort of embody this other thing, uh, there's a lot in there. That's, that's worth studying. And actually that's its own thing, right? The skill of applying knowledge under pressure is its own skill set, separate from whatever this, the knowledge is you're trying to apply. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes, uh, because I think, the you get sort of snippets and tidbits in for me at least maybe a recess scenario that's then finished and you have a very brief discussion with your senior and they give you a couple of insights into maybe how what they were thinking at the time but you never really get any formal training into sort of how to contextualize a lot of the things that we have to deal with so 
it's it feels like to me I don't know what it's like in the states at the moment but certainly in the UK there's there's quite a few problems across the healthcare service and which are familiar all over the world I imagine at the moment with pressures and resources and service provision and I think it has the danger of really demoralizing people and just really breaking them down in many different ways and it feels like you have to sort of embody some sort of narrative or a paradigm or some kind of sense of a journey or a hero's kind of journey paradigm in order to ameliorate all of the the problems that you run up to with the system yeah i mean you're you're spot on and and it is it is a hero's journey, right? Like if you think about like the traditional, like Joseph Campbell sort of substructure of that, right? Like you have a space where you're doing something and then you're going to cross some threshold and become this other thing. You're going to go through an underworld and, you know, fight some demons. And if you're lucky, you're going to come back out and try to bring something back to teach people. But what what you said is so fascinating to me because the way that you described it, which is like, okay, there's a senior and a junior, you guys like fumble your way through a case you end and the senior's like, I don't know, do better. Like, you know, here's maybe something that I did better. All right, good luck. And then you're on. And, and you're right that that's like, ah, that's like not enough, right? That's not enough to really, to really grow. And to me, I wonder having been on both sides of that equation, like, is that because the senior doesn't know enough for themselves about how things work, right? Like they can teach you about the proper dosing of amniodarone, but they can't necessarily teach you about how to regulate your mind. Is it because they don't know? Is it because they don't have the right vocabulary? Is it because they don't know how to teach it to you? Or is it because there's some other substructure missing in there? And like any of those things could be the case, right? Because there are master clinicians, like absolutely excellent emergency doctors, and you watch them and you're like, whoa, I want to be like that, right? But how do you ask them the right questions to learn how they got there? Right? You, you can't just go ask, like, how do you be an ER doctor? Any more than you could ask, like, a master chess player, like, what's a bishop for? Well, oh, my God, right? Like, it totally depends on, like, like you have to have so much knowledge and so much basis to even be able to approach how to answer that question. Yeah. Right? And, like, so, I don't know, how do, you, how do you sort through that kind of thing? How do you pass expertise? Like yeah, that? I suppose a lot of it must be when you do see someone who's just really competent and proficient and that stands out. It, even for them, it must be very difficult to make explicit what are the attributes that are causing them to perform in that way. It's difficult to break it down, and that that's something that's been so interesting in in in, in your book um, to to read through there. I mean, chapters like finding calm in the storm, applying graduated pressure, training your tired moves—all of these things were sort of concepts that are somewhere in the background, but then you've made them oh, this is what it actually is. And then there's very actionable points and making it that explicit is is just really fantastic. So in in terms of getting into a bit of detail about that, um, sort of looking through the different chapters, if this, now this is quite a broad question, so I do apologize, but I had a, um, a colleague recently come up to me and say that they they had been hoping to apply for emergency medicine training and they had actually got a place um, and it was something they were hoping to do for a while but they found the the aspect of the system and the restrict the restraints on resources and things 
so tricky that they had some kind of moral injury every every shift that they went on because they felt like they couldn't quite provide the level of care they wanted. Uh, they just were up against so many things. And that, in a sense, is almost, I mean, it's changeable to a degree, but as an individual, you're sort of stuck within that system, I suppose. So if do you have any advice or anything that you would say to somebody who is struggling in that sense but you know loves the specialty or it doesn't have to be a and e even or emergency medicine it could be any other thing but they're just struggling within that system um from an individual level what can what can they do you know i when i was thinking about starting medicine i spent some time shadowing uh an amazing doctor um, who was an oncologist, uh, and split her time between uh, research and seeing patients. And I remember asking her one day, um, Dr. Karen Albritton is her name, uh, I remember asking her one day, why do you do that? Why do you do both things, right? Why do you, why do you see patients and do research at the same time? And, you know, why not just pick one thing and be like, the best you possibly can at it. Why, why split your energy? And she said something kind of offhand as we were between patients that, that's always stuck with me that I think is in some sense part of an answer to this question. She goes, I, I want to be able to go into a patient's room and tell them, I'm doing for you the best that humanity knows how to do. But separate from that, when I'm not in this room, I'm out there trying to figure out how to do better for your kids and your grandkids. So the next time somebody comes in, I'm going to give them a better answer than what I can give you. And that split between not only doing what you can, but knowing that you're going to use whatever happens in that room to make yourself better for the next time that somebody comes in front of you, I think is part of my personal answer to what you're describing, right? So just like you guys, we have an incredible press and lack of resources in our, our um, requirements to resources ratio is often pretty skewed, especially in a big public emergency room like where I work, right? And so you're not always able to provide the exact level of care that you would want to in an ideal circumstance. And that tension is real, right? That tension is real. And to me, part of my answer, and I guess in the book, the place I would point to is the chapter, Never Waste Suffering, right? But to me, it's a lot about this idea that whatever happens, whatever case I, I see, whatever Thing we can do, I'm going to do my best. And then I'm also going to go back and study it and try to do better for the next time. That particular chapter take away a lot of it, but yeah, yeah, that particular chapter did hit pretty hard. And, um, mm. I think it was really useful to help reframe when things don't go well, or when there is just suffering in front of you, whether it's the patient or colleagues or whatever, could you just expand on it a bit? Because I think it's, it's such a valuable concept um, the, the idea of not wasting suffering. Yeah. And, and, and sort of the, the punchline idea is that as weird as it is to say this, that suffering is a precious resource, right? That our suffering as providers, that our patients suffering as humans, that that's actually a precious resource that we need to harvest and harness. That sounds really grim, right? To say it that way, that we're, you know, like leveraging our patient suffering. But truly, what we have is opportunities to learn to be better as individuals, teams, and systems. And if we don't, if we allow people to suffer and don't learn from it, then that suffering is dispersed and wasted into the universe. 
Instead, if we say, okay, what can we do better? What can we learn from this? How do we grow? How can we change our system and become better for the next person? It doesn't take the suffering away, but at least it transmutes it a little bit into something usable, some fuel that we can use for our system. Because mm. I suppose the one thing that is always going to be there is is suffering in some way or another. So having that yeah. shift of perspective is really useful, actually. Yeah. And slightly related, I suppose, the I find one of the tensions with, I suppose, any frontline work and any of the acute specialties or anything really, is the idea that there's almost a bottomless pit of required development that just never ends. But the potential cost, if you don't do enough in service of that, is death or morbidity, mortality of the patient who you're next going to see. And it's a bit odd, but for me in the last few months, I've become slightly sort of stressed listening to medical podcasts because I feel this void open up in front of me of all these unknown unknowns and it's sort of where do you how do you balance the tension between knowing that you need to work in your time out of the job to get better mm. but also not to <laughs> do yourself in knowing that the least the, the less you yeah. know the less you can do and you might miss out on a crucial aspect that you need for the next patient that you see yeah um we have a hard job, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like th there's nothing easy about that. And, and you're totally right that, you know, the, the stakes are often very high and the, th there's an impulse. And I feel this too. There's an impulse to want to work all the time, to want to just study and work and train and drill and that, to be that your entire life. And I think um, that as I've gotten older and done this more, that I've shifted my focus on that quite a bit towards, towards being a human as opposed to just being a machine that just drives forward and tries to learn all the time. Now, there's a balance. You have to study. You have to learn. But to overwhelm that, I think you end up hurting yourself and your patients if you just burn yourself out like that. Um, I wish I could give you an exact prescription, you know, like work exactly this much and not more. You know, I don't, I don't think that's possible, except there's that there's that story um, of the Buddha and the sitar player. You know this one? I don't know. Uh, there's a, there's a, so I forget the guy's name. There's a famous uh, follower of Buddha who's a sitar player, and they're, um, they're sitting in some garden someday, and uh, the Buddha turns to the sitar player and says, will you teach me how to play the sitar? You know, the guy's like, oh, you know, it'd be an honor. I would, you know, I'd be, it'd be a joy, right? So it was, the first thing you need to do is you need to learn how to tune the instrument. So he gives the Buddha the sitar, and the Buddha starts turning and turning and turning. And finally, the guy's like, hey, I, I have to interrupt you. It's way too loose. If you don't put any tension on the string, you'll never get a note. He goes, oh, okay, great. Starts cranking the other way. Cranks, 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 right? You can probably see where this is going. <laughs> but, and he turns it, and the guy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa you got to stop. you got to stop. If you turn the string too tight, it's going to break. It's like, ah, there you go, right? And the Buddha gives it back to him and goes, oh, not too tight, not too loose. Mm. That's it, right? And, and I, like, I think that's part of it. I think that we have to be, we have to think of ourselves as an instrument and we have to make ourselves not too tight and not too loose because that's where we're actually able to do the most good for the people around us. Uh, again, I think that's a personal sort of um, 
inquiry and experimentation about what the right thing for you is. Uh, because there's not like an exact way to structure that, but you have to figure that out. And, and I guess I, I'd also say the second piece of that is that um, the room and your team is always better than you are as a general principle, right? Like you are an imperfect and in, um, no, what's the right way to say that? You're, uh, I'm going to say the team is always bigger than you, right? So part of my job as an imperfect person, not, the most, you know, like not able to provide every single thing I want to to people is to harness my entire team and to bring everybody together to do the best for this patient. Because collectively, we're a lot bigger and better than I am personally as a doctor. Mm. And on that note, thinking about some specific things, if you are about to go into an acute situation, it's the classic thing where mm -hmm. you're, you're on shift and then you get this, the bat phone rings and some horrendous multi-casualty totally. <laughs> accident is coming in. Um, could you just walk us a bit through if you have any rituals or any sort of preparatory steps psychologically or even physiologically to deal with something that's coming in that might be quite unknown and high acuity? Yeah, I think... Um you know, I, I think that this gets a little bit towards the cycle that we always talk about a lot in the Emergency Mind Project, this idea of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, right, as that being our, our wheel that we spin. Um, and so we, we take that structure of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, and we apply it at multiple scales like a fractal. So if I'm about to intubate, right, if I'm about to put an airway in, I'm running prepare, perform, recover, and evolve over that really small technique. If I'm about to have a, you know, an MCI with multiple incoming and I'm spinning up three or four trauma teams and I'm going to be a sort of team leader for this, or maybe I'm the sub captain for one of the trauma teams, I'm still running that whole cycle for it in, in my mind, right? And so what does that mean? Well, you know, um, on a personal level, uh, I'm getting myself ready to go, right? So the internal things that I do, or I take a minute and I remember my purpose, my sense of purpose, like why I'm here and what I'm doing. Um, I'll often check in with myself about how I'm feeling physically, you know, and like little things like, man, have you had a drink of water? Have you gone to the bathroom recently? Like, are you physically ready to perform? Or is your, is your gear on as you're sort of getting everything ready to go? Um, I often take my own pulse in this moment. Um, because to me, that is a simple step that reminds me of all of the training I've had and all the things I've already prepared for. And the more times I do that, the more times I take my pulse before something crazy goes down, the more times I'm able to link in my mind, okay, I've gotten through all those other crazy times. So I'm probably going to make it through this time. I've got this huge data bank of crazy stuff that's happened that I've taken my pulse before and great. Now here I am again. Um, if we do have any information, uh, if we do have any sort of sense of what's coming in, then that prepare um, sequence is also about uh, getting your team ready to go for that moment, right? So you're assigning roles, you're thinking about potential backup plans, um, you're maybe alerting sort of subsequent teams around you, like, hey, I might need you to spin up as well. Um, and then... And then there's this moment of looseness, right? And I wonder if you guys have this the same way in your resuscitation phase. So you'll, you'll find us just joking around and making fun of each other for like the two or three minutes before something comes in, right? Everybody's just loose and happy and like, you know, you're getting your gear together and you're, everything's ready to go. And, and then the person turns around the corner and there's this instant snap to attention, right? There's this instant sense of, okay, here we go. And everybody just stands up physically straighter and walks towards the patient. Right? Because that's your moment of getting things ready to go. Your engines are firing up. 
Um, and, you know, how do we train that? Like, how do we build that? To me, part of that is culture and leading by example, right? So I want my other doctors and nurses and uh, janitorial staff and literally everybody to be able to look at me and see me stand up straight and walk towards that patient and know, oh, okay, that, that's what we're doing, right? Like we're here, we're here to do this. Um, we don't often talk about that explicitly, uh, but we do share those moments of culture back and forth with each other and, you know, and use that as an opportunity to teach sort of the, um, the, the less explicit, more, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the end of saying this, right? I, I think what I want to say is it's not just what you talk about explicitly. It's also how you carry yourself, how you act and how you share that culture with the people around you. Mm. I think that makes sense. Yeah, no, that someone was speaking about, maybe it's similar to sort of the hidden curriculum idea where you pick mm. up on all these more subconscious cues of how people are behaving when they're not specifically teaching. Right, and so like we're at this time in our training cycle right now where my junior residents are becoming my senior residents and they're starting to take over running these cases. And so one of the things that we do is we have some conversations offline uh, about these moments. And you're like, well, how do you want to run this? How do you want to act and stand? How do you want people to look at you and see the, as you're describing, like the hidden, un like unconscious curriculum? Like what kind of culture do you want to build in your teams? Mm. And have you got any any framework yourself or, or, or common touchstones that you see underpinning good teams that you've either been in or, or seen elsewhere? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I, I think um, being conscious uh, of communication is really important, right? Like understanding how you're going to communicate and setting some bright line boundaries around what you want to communicate. Um, so for example, uh, that when we say, okay, here we go, right? We are announcing a shift in the, the scene around us. And we're all doing that because that's a, that's a, a linchpin, a phrase that we use to sort of like change the shape of what's happening. Um, you'll often also see that when uh, we're getting ready to intubate, right? So we might say, okay, I want dead quiet in the room. And, you know, you have this sense of it's a, it's a, a, a turning phrase that allows us to shift our, our angle about it. Um, <laughs> I think uh, separate from that, really good teams are able to pass information in multiple directions within themselves, right? There's a hierarchical structure of who's in control and, who, and who's in control is known and recognized, but we're able to pass information along all directions irrespective of that chain of control. Right. And that, that happens before you get into the resuscitation bay. Right. That happens in how you're talking to each other as friends and humans. That happens to how you're sort of that happens in the sense of how you're um, interacting with folks for non-urgent matters and how you're responding to their questions outside of that resuscitation bay. And then when you get in there, that's what sets the stage for, OK, I know this person will listen to me. So I feel empowered to speak up when I see a potential danger coming. Mm. OK. And if if you're being involved in a situation, perhaps um, just as a, a random example, you need to do a procedure that seems mm -hmm. less than optimal or just less than ideal um, because of the situation. Have you got any psychological tools that you use? I, I've heard, for example, Jocko Willink talk about just saying the word sort of good 
regardless of what the situation is, which I've tried to <laughs> tried to implement a bit, and it does have some some help actually. If something's going just terribly yeah. wrong, you just think this is good, just to try and switch a bit in your in your brain rather than being scared of what's about to happen. You try and go forwards into it. Um, is there anything that you kind of have for yourself that allows you to step forwards into those those worrying frightening scenarios yeah man i and I, I love i love his use of good there, there's just some great like if you've never listened to his stuff on that like you should definitely listen to it, it, it it's amazing um I, I have some similar stuff before i before i like do the actual technique though to me one of the most interesting parts of it is if you want it to work under pressure you have to practice it ahead of time Right. You can't just you can't just say to yourself, OK, I'm going to say, you know, the word pineapple when I get into resuscitation tomorrow. And like, man, that's going to like charge me up and get me ready to go. Cause you're going to get there like, you know, the whatever's going to be flying. And you're going to say pineapple. Like, what the hell does that mean? It's ridiculous, right? It doesn't work like that. You have to charge these things up and get them ready to go, which means you have to practice them at lower stress scenarios. Right. So we talk about the concept of the wedge all the time and applied applying graduated pressure. Right. So high wedge is crazy bore, you know, full out resuscitation and low wedge is you spill coffee on yourself. Something's going bad. It's a little bit challenging. Right. And so whatever you want to try and I'll give you I'll give you my techniques in a second. But whatever you want to try, you have to practice it in low wedge times first to give it the meaning and give it the sense of purpose. Make sure it really fits you. And then sort of ramp it up until you're ready to use it in, in you know, full battle gear or whatever you want to call it. Um, and if you pick pineapple, that's amazing. Like, I'd love to hear about that. That's, that's incredible. Right? I, might, I might have to try that this week. Um, you know, one of the things that I keep coming back to is, is the similar word structure. Uh, it, it's done a little bit differently. So for me, when I'm um, – a, a situation that I am often challenged by is – I've started something and it's not going the way I want it to go, right? I'm attempting to intubate and I miss the tube. Um, we're trying to get a central line in and the person's moving and I just, just can't quite get my catheter in the right place. Um, you know, or the power goes out in the ER and, you know, something is, uh, you know, on a ventilator and, oh man, how are you going to get that, right? Like there's just like bad things happening. And I, I found over time that I needed a thing uh, I needed a touchstone, an anchor that would that would do two things. It would um, acknowledge the badness of what's happening, uh, but it wouldn't get me swept by it, right? And it had to have that that perfect, again, not too tight, not too loose structure to it. Because if I didn't acknowledge what was happening, I pretended everything was fine, right? You know, you know that cartoon of the, the dog in in hell, and there's like <laughs> yeah. flame all around it. It's like, really great, like no, it's not true, right? It's not great. If things are bad. You need to say that. And you need to say that not just for yourself, but for everybody around you, right? Because if you're leading a team and you're pretending everything's fine and things are on fire, people are going to be like, does this, you know, does Dan not recognize how bad this is? Like, is he completely out of touch? Is he playing a fiddle while Rome is burning? Like, are we, are we completely missing this? Um, so you need to have something that acknowledges it. But at the same time, you can't fly off the handle and throw things and be really upset about it because that doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't lead the team. Nothing good happens and you're burning energy for no particular purpose. So so what's something that's in that middle, right? For me, so I say, well, this is suboptimal. 
And I usually say it in this like sort of quiet, kind of reflective voice of like, you know, there's like fi- flame shooting all around you or whatever. You're like, nah, this is a little suboptimal. <laughs> right? It sends and the like, message. That laugh is exactly what I'm going for, mm. right? That's exactly what I'm going for, both internally and in everybody else to be like, oh, you think? Like, you think this is suboptimal? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think it is too, <laughs> right? And it's that sort of like pause and reflect that allows you to break whatever patterns are going on. And so you can say, yeah, this is bad, but you know, it's not the worst. It's just somewhere like, yeah, this is a little suboptimal. Okay. The person's maybe dying. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a little suboptimal. We can do better than this. Right. And that gets you that little interrupt and allows you to sort of take a change of, of position. But again, I developed that by practicing that in small scale scenarios, doing it in sim, right. Doing it in whatever before I'm able to really roll it out when I, when I need it. That was really cool. I, I can, th- I think I can think of one or two in the last few months where because it would just add fuel to the fire if you said oh my god what's happening here or you'd kind of start freaking out so exactly. i think reflecting on it i think the thing that i tend to say is something oh this isn't ideal um something along those lines but it kind of develops um just organically because you realize actually freaking out about this just really doesn't help and it makes the situation much worse so I'm th- I think I'm going to steal that. This is <laughs> suboptimal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, do it. Absolutely. <laughs> do it. I, I've got one of my teammates who heard me talk about this, and then his, his expression is, uh-oh, spaghetti. <laughs> which I, I think is like, you know, charming and kind of ridiculous. And he, he's a great doctor. I, w- I have a lot of respect for him for that, but I don't, that one doesn't work for me for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> you need to pull that off, like, pretty well, yeah. <laughs> um, so as on the topic of things are going bad, it's not ideal, not the outcomes that you wanted. If if there is a disaster or a mistake is made, um, how do you, how do you process that? Particularly a mistake that you struggle to depersonalize and that feels like is inherently part of your own practice and trying to trying to go through that whole. Uh, I'm just saying this because one one example I can think of was something that happened uh, a year or so ago. Um, there wasn't any bad outcome from it, but when the mistake happened, I immediately started flying into self-criticism. What the hell were you thinking, X, Y, Z? And I had to catch myself and and just... I remember, I think I audibly said to myself, this isn't helping, let's just try and deal with the situation now and you can like lambast yourself when you get home, which I did. Um, but how do you work through that? Because they, they inevitably happen and they can really take somebody out if they're, if they're bad enough. Yeah. That, yes. Right. For those of us that, that function in this extraordinary world and this really hard scenarios where the stakes are very high, um, there are bad outcomes and things do go wrong. And sometimes those things are us that go wrong. Mm. Right. And so, so first off, uh, inherent in what you said is a really important um, thing, which I think we need to make explicit, which is the difference between performance and outcome. Right. So outcome is what happens. Performance is the part of what happens that's under your control. Right. The, the process in the world that we work in is not totally under our control. You can perform exceptionally well. You can be a skilled doctor and deliver that skill and the patient can still have a really bad outcome. That's really hard, right? That's really challenging. 
But that's actually a different type of hard and a different type of challenge than a moment where you know that your performance was subpar, that you could have done better, whether or not there was a good or bad outcome for the patient as a result of that. Mm. Right. And so understanding the different types of things that you're working with is, is an important sub point. Right. So there's an, a, an amazing um, expert in decision making who I'm a huge fan of, Annie Duke, who is a, a former world champion poker player um, that's turned into an expert in decision making. And, and she talks about this process uh, of decomposing what happened into performance and outcome. The, the word she uses for that that I've adopted is fielding. Right. So when you feel the case, what you're doing is decomposing what happened into performance and outcome, identifying which part belongs in which and figuring out then what to do as a result. Mm. Um, so setting all of that aside for a second, I think you're asking about the situations where it's more of a performance issue than an outcome issue. Right? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Because, okay. yeah, but we can we can go in any. Direction, yeah. No. But just thinking go about for the hard for one. Second. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no easy way. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, I, I think you sort of have to approach it from a um, like a tiered uh, sequential perspective, right? So, first off, you need to get yourself out of whatever situation you're in. What I mean by that is: is the patient still there, and do they still need your help? Because if, they, if they're still there and they still need your help, then them needing your help is more important than anything you're feeling, right? And so you need, to, you need to just get your mind back into it and keep going. And that's where, honestly, something like this is suboptimal is so important because it, it allows you to start acknowledging the bad without getting swept and then pivoting yourself into the next dimension or in the next direction you need to go, right? So, okay, you're going you're gonna to go do that. You're going to take care of the patient. You were trying to put... Um, uh, you know, you're trying to intubate and you couldn't get it and you couldn't get it and it, and you ended up in a can't intubate, can't optionate scenario because you didn't intubate the right way and you had to achieve surgical front of neck access and uh, crack the person. And you're like, oh my God, what? <sighs> I'm so like, I'm really unhappy with my performance in that. Okay. Well, before you start there, you got to make sure the person's okay. You got to make sure that crack's in the right place. You got to make sure that they're like on the machine, breathing well, and that you've set the next things up for them. Right, because that has to happen before you're able to process anything. All right, so that's like you know step zero: get yourself out of whatever that situation is. All right, the next thing for me is to create a little space, right? Because whatever you're going to think about in those next couple minutes probably is not the most accurate representation of reality that you could come up with. That's just not usually how that works. In fact, I'd challenge you to think of any situation where your first impulse after something went south is the most accurate representation of reality. I, I don't think you're going to find one of those. I don't think I find one of those, right? But what we do find is a pathway that is self-flagellation, right? It's us yelling at ourselves in one form or another. That's always available to us. No problem, <laughs> right? We can certainly beat ourselves up anytime we want to. And it's a really common, easy pathway because what we feel is this internal tension between what we were able to do and what we want to do. And one um, way to address that is essentially to run away from it by just yelling at ourselves. It doesn't accomplish anything. It temporarily makes us feel better because it eliminates some of the tension. We feel like we're punishing ourselves, but nothing actually useful happens. So what I would probably suggest is 
on a micro level, like go drink some water, go walk around for a second, walk outside and, and get, get a breath of fresh air if you can, right? Take a little bit of space before you start processing it. Then when you washed some of those chemicals out, then you do have to start processing it, right? You can't ignore it. it. All of these things leave this residue in us that we need to process, we need to work with. And so personally, when I do that, you know, I'll often do um, something that's called like, you know, you'll take a beat, you'll take a breath, and then I'll often do something that's called a hot wash, which is a really quick, rapid debrief after the thing. Uh, and I'll gather everybody else that's around uh, in the space that was involved in the thing. And we'll usually use like the plus delta model for it, right? So we'll be like plus, okay, what was our skill? What did we deliver? What did we do well? And then delta, what can we do better next time? as a, just a quick structure. And we'll often go around the room with the more junior people speaking first, if we can. Uh, and then the more senior people sort of weighing in at the end to sort of provide perspective. Um, often I won't, uh, if it runs really well, I won't talk at all. Uh, or I'll talk only at the very end as the leader to be like, here's a, like a little bit of spice I can add to this and, and give some structure to it. That's the hot wash. Then you need a little bit more time. Then you're going to go back through it again. Right. If it's really something that's eating you, then you got to go back through it again with some structure afterwards and run it through in your mind, like sim it over and over again. Like think to yourself, okay, well, what could have gone slightly differently and how might I do that? Right. If you're really good at it, a thing I love doing is posing it as a case for other people. Right. So I'll go through something and something won't work. I'll hot wash it. I'll take a little bit of space. And then a week later, I'll start running it as a case for my friends. And I'll be like, hey, guys, I want to put you. Can you can you can you be me for a second? I need you to drop into my shoes and help me figure this out. So here's what happened. I was intubating this person and then I couldn't get the tube in and then the tube fell on the floor. And so here's the scenario. And it's important that you don't ask them. Here's what I did. What do you think about it? Instead, you stop at that moment. You're like, blah, 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 blah. Here's the situation. What would you do? See what they come up with. It's really humbling. People come up with really smart things that I wish I'd thought of in a moment, right? But that's, that's a great thing because that allows me to start processing what I could do better next time. And it's also the definition of don't waste suffering, right? Something bad happened. I suffered. The patient suffered. And I'm using that to build a teaching case that I can then work with other people on. And collectively, we're all going to get better at the end of it because of that. That's cool. Yeah. I guess you've got to, it, it sounds like giving yourself that time in a really disciplined way to just not allow yourself to dwell on things too much so that you can be a bit more objective, be a bit more realistic about actually what happened rather than going down that rabbit hole of just, yeah, as you say, self-flagellation. That sounds like a really key aspect yeah. And like at the end of the day, right? Like if I take time and space and I come to the conclusion that I suck. <laughs> all right. Well, then I'll figure out what to do better. Right. But I know that whatever the first thing I come up with is, it's just probably not going to be the best thing I'm going to come up with. Yeah. And so I may as well, like I owe it to that patient to figure out the best thing I can come up with. Not just my first, like, Dan, you suck. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Moving from that to a, um, a slightly different topic, if that's all right, I've noticed that mm -hmm. when you speak about and write about what you do, you refer to it often as a craft, 
which is an interesting word to use. And it's something that I was thinking about a, a wee while ago, just um, in terms of how medicine is, is practiced, because it feels like uh, <laughs> I was with one of my consultants the other day and he was trying to find um, the, the relevant patient notes. And it came with all of these other pieces of paper, which just had tick boxes and just pro formers. And he said, you know what? This is all just so superfluous. And it's just there because there's been something that's happened in the past. And now there has to be this pro forma for every single patient. And that to me spoke of the larger uh, sort of culture that healthcare is now delivered in where a lot of it is about service provision, which is sort of an antithesis to craft where there's a bit more experimentation and exploration. Um, what's your sort of take on, it's a bit of a broad question, but medicine or emergency medicine practiced as a craft? Oh, yeah. I'm really fascinated by teams and cultures that uh, strive for excellence, right? That try to build cultures of excellence and that want to perform at the best that they possibly can given the constraints of what they work with. I think that in many ways, we're just starting to to look for excellence in emergency medicine, right? Like for a while, and I, I'm, I'm a, you know, relatively young buck at this, like there's a lot of people with a lot more gray hair than me that are, that have been doing this and they might, uh, I hope I don't offend them by saying this, but I think for a long time, we were just trying to figure out who the hell we are, right? What is emergency medicine, right? And, and you're right. Sometimes it was providing a, you know, band-aid service. And sometimes it's really coming into its own as its own set of uh, ideas and processes and, and types of humans that do it. And I, I think that what we're seeing is, um, uh, I hope what we're seeing is a, a shift towards understanding like what excellence would look like. And part of that to me is this idea of, of a craft, right? That we are, that we are students um, and trying to learn to be better and trying to learn to master ourselves and our craft. Um, now, the reality is we practice within the set of a system that we don't fully control, right? I don't fully control American healthcare. I, <laughs> I don't even come close to fully controlling American healthcare, right? So there are things that happen that might not be what I would want them to be. And, you know, you're sort of faced with this question of like, well, what do you do about that, right? Like, do you, do you try to bend certain pieces of it? Do you try to be excellent within the shape that you have available? And sometimes the answer is each of those things, right? You want to leave the system better than you found it. And you also want to develop excellence within the, the space that you have available. Um, that might be too philosophical an answer to your question, right? Because I, I think no, you're, not you're, necessarily. you're getting at some of the tension. Yeah. No, no, I think like there is yeah. your, your, your outlook on it is, yeah, kind of what I was just thinking about um how you view it as a craft um but yeah no that's exactly you've answered it there's this great um there's this great book that attributes and and uh the author um rich divini talks about the difference between peak performance and optimal performance 
right? And he talks about peak performance being what an Olympian can put together for an Olympic event, right? They control every variable, what they ate six weeks before, right? Like every microfiber of their, of their, uh, you know, like kit, like everything they can possibly put together in order to develop, to perform at the absolute pinnacle of human ability at that one moment. The opposite of that is optimal performance, which is, can you deliver the best possible thing given the constraints that you face at that exact moment, right? Which is a little bit more accurate to us as emergency doctors. We don't get to control everything. Peak performance probably isn't what we spend most of our time doing. Although you could argue that within resuscitation bay, we can control as many variables as possible to get as close to peak performance as possible. But really what we think about is optimal performance, right? How do we deliver the best that we can how we master our craft within the shape of what we have available. Mm-hmm. Is that that sounds like it reflects partly to the the sort of forest see the forest and the leaf um, mm. concept that you speak about yeah. in the book as well, where you need you need to be able to really zoom in on the micro aspects of what you're doing, but also have an overview, situational overview of the entire department or company or family or whatever is going on, whatever the context is. Um, and and I think writing about how you're not just dealing with the patient who's in front of you, but there's also the patient with the chest pain who's sitting in the waiting room and then the one with the chest pain who's in the ambulance that's waiting outside. And there's it's not just yeah. the thing that's right in front of you, but it's all interlinked and sort of expanding your brain out and your mind to encompass all of that and thinking about, well, if I do this for this patient, I might not be able to do this. And that's a real that's a real challenge that I'm currently trying to understand and wrap my head around. Um, but um, yeah, really tricky. Is there anything regarding that when you're <laughs> the example that you gave was just hor- really terrifying where you're placing a, I think you're placing a central line in the example and someone rushes into the recess room and says, there's, there's a pediatric trauma that's coming in or something. And you're midway through this person who's kind of <laughs> flinging their neck around and trying to, mm-hmm. trying to, parallel process those two things at the same time was just the ultimate example of how difficult that is to keep those two things in the air when you're when you're working yeah. how do you do that as a yeah, as a as, as a doctor when you're in the department yeah, that, that, that is suboptimal <laughs> the definition <laughs> of <laughs> yeah it really is so so you know in the in the states our emergency uh, medical training, our residency programs are are split between three years and four years. But um, I uh, attended a four-year training program. I'm glad I did. And I teach at a four-year training program. And I'm glad I do because I really think that's that's what it should be. They should be four-year training programs. And one of the, one of the jokes we have about that uh, anytime we're, we're asking something like, how do you, how do you start to tackle this like nearly impossible scenario, right? The, the joke is, well, it's a four-year training program for a reason, right? Because like, it's hard. Like what you're describing is incredibly hard and incredibly challenging. What, we talked earlier briefly about the ethos that the team is better and stronger than the person. And I think that this type of situation is where that really plays itself out, right? So if I'm in a room doing a thing that I can't leave from, and there's other stuff going on in the department, whether or not that's an MCI or multiple sick incoming, or I'm putting a line in one person and there's another patient over in the corner that I'm really worried about their breathing, right? It's my team that allows me to be in multiple places at once and synthesize information and keep that shared mental model going. 
right? So what does that functionally look like? That looks like me asking somebody, hey, I need you to go to room three, check on their auction status and come back and get me if it's less than 92%. Cool. And then in my mind, okay, here's what I think my mental model of that person is. Or, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm concerned the person in room four, their blood pressure is likely getting softer. We've given them a lot of fluid. I'm worried about giving them more. What I need you to do is get ready to start pressures on that person. Not yet, but in a minute. And if their blood pressure is less than this when you see them in five minutes, I want you to go ahead and start levofed at two, right? And then come back and let me know when you've done that. And so you're able to like move these pieces around in space and you're able to, to expand the mental model that you have you're also able to trust your teammates to bring information to you and push it to you that you don't even know that you need, right? So, hey, you know, Dan, I know you're in the middle of this, but I'm really worried about three. I think this is happening. Like, I intend to start this. Are you okay with that? Amazing, right? Now, how do you build that? Well, how do you build the idea of suboptimal, right? It's, okay, I'm going to coin this term as on the fly here. It's the pineapple problem. Right? If you just start saying a thing and demand that it works under pressure, if you just start saying pineapple, it doesn't do anything. You have to set it up ahead of time to be able to deploy it under pressure. Right? So if I want a functional team that's able to excel in these really challenging scenarios, because it can't just be me, it has to be my team. Right? If I want a functional team, then I've got to set up that team at the beginning, beforehand, in the days and weeks and months before I need them to really deploy to the best that I can. Right. What that means is that the little interactions, somebody coming to you and saying, hey, I don't understand why we did this. Oh, amazing. That is a great opportunity for us to improve our shared mental model of how this thing works. Phenomenal. And thank you so much for coming to me to ask that question. I am delighted that you did that. And I'm delighted that you did that, not just because it shows that you care and you want to get better, but because it is an opportunity for us as a team to improve our skill set. Totally amazing. Especially when I don't know the answer. Man, that's like the coolest, right? You're like, dude, I have no idea. Like last night we were on shift and we were, we were trying to figure out a question about in a hypothetical scenario involving atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response and you burned through your first tier medication and you're on your second and you're trying to figure out if you need to shift gears to a third tier, are you supposed to bolt with that third tier even if you've already given the first and second tier? Oh my God, I have no idea, right? Like, like I'm actually not sure. I can make a guess. But it was a great time. My juniors were asking me this question. We were putting each other through cases, uh, like mental cases in between traumas coming in. And it was a great opportunity to say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. That's so cool. Will you please call pharmacy, talk to them about it, and come back and report to us what we think the answer to this is? And it was this multi-part communication where we were able to improve our relationship with pharmacy, improve our relationship with each other, model the fact that I'm not a perfect doctor and that I need to learn, and create this like web of communication around ourselves for it, right? And it's those moments that build a culture, a learning, growing culture that's going to deploy when you're putting a central line in somebody and some other trauma comes in. It might not be obvious how those two things are connected, but they are. What you do to build culture is what allows you to perform under pressure when you need it. Mm. I guess there'd be an entire episode plus on just how you even begin to build that culture. And yeah, yeah, there's a lot. There must be a huge amount behind that. What's your, um, what's your hope for the emergency mind project? Where do you, where do you see things going at the moment? Where are you pushing it? Yeah, man, I, you know, I, I think there's so much out there to learn and I, 
you know, I wrote, I wrote this book uh, because I wanted to create a vocabulary that people could use to start talking about these problems, to get back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, right? Like, how do you start having conversations about what's happening? And I think that the book allows us to have a little bit of a shared common vocabulary to start digging into it. Um, I hope that it rapidly becomes obsolete. <laughs> we get a better vocabulary and a better sort of system. We start learning how to teach each other and, and how to grow together as a team better than what we've come up with this. So I always think about it as sort of like two dimensions, right? Like what can the universe teach emergency medicine and what can emergency medicine teach the universe? Mm. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we can expand on both of those lines and really improve our communication and learning with other groups that operate in high pressure situations. Uh, and learn from them what their best practices are uh, and start incorporating that into our own training and, and ability as emergency pr- providers. That's awesome. Um, where can, where's the best place to find all of that? Absolutely. So um, you can always, uh, anybody listening to this, you can always reach me directly at dan at emergencymind.com um, or you can go to emergencymind.com. Uh, from there, you'll find the podcast, the book, uh, the newsletter and, and the whatever else I come up with to, to do this kind of stuff and i would thoroughly recommend that people do check it out it's um it's brilliant and your newsletter is um is excellent really enjoy it when it drops in but um oh, thanks so much man but listen thank thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all of all of that it's uh i'm sure everyone who's listening to this will, will get a lot of lot out of it like i have really appreciate it dan Oh, it, it's an absolute pleasure and, and an honor to be invited. I, can, I, can I impose on you, though? Please. I have, I have a request. 100%. Okay. My, my request is if you're listening to this and you have a better idea than anything that I just said, I want to hear it. If you have a different way to do it, if you have a better way to do it, if you're like, man, why isn't Dan doing it this way? Like, like please, I need that. Please send that to me. <laughs> you heard it here. Oh, that's great. Thanks very much, Dan. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.